right, and this son-in-law, uh, tell us about Joseph. Alrighty, so, um, oh, no oh, stool. There's the stool. Oh, well, thank you, appreciate that. Uh, it's interesting we're talking just now about God being sovereign, because I would have to say that as we read through this week's parasha, the whole thing just really screams the sovereignty of God. And it's about, it's about the small details, the little things that you might not necessarily notice, things like moving to Alabama, or things, you know, that might not seem quite as, as big in a life story. But God is orchestrating them. It's very much like the story of Esther, the story of Esther, this tradition, that um, if you read the book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned anywhere. Most of you probably already know where I'm going with this. But the point of that is that God is hidden in the story and he is orchestrating the events that happen behind the scenes. The exact same thing is happening here with Joseph. Time and time again, you will find details that seem almost irrelevant and then later end up being very important. Along those lines, one of the things we also get emphasized in this portion is that if you want to be a righteous dude, you got to be careful. Because the small things, the things that you might, you know, it's wrong, but not so wrong. Um, or so it seems, end up getting some people into some pretty big trouble, um, which we'll see pretty quickly here. Uh, starting off in the very beginning of the portion, um, there's a couple of things that jump out uh, to the sages right away. One of them is the very first word, which is Vayeshev. Vayeshev Yaakov. Uh, and Joseph, Jacob settled. They teach that um, Jacob has had a long long life already. He's gone through, he's had to flee his house, he's had to uh, work double for his wife, he's had a whole slew of children, he's now got four wives, he's had to bury Rachel, he's had to make up with Esau and get scared to death of getting killed, he's had his hip dislocated by an angel, which is a pretty unusual experience, um, and through all of this, all of this stuff has happened, the mess with Dina and Shechem and all of this, he finally gets to a place and he's ready to just settle down. Um, and then it begins the story of Joseph. And as we know, the story of Joseph does not go so well for Jacob. Um, and I, and the, the sages point out that Jacob was so like ready to just stop. He was ready to settle down, to be at peace. And um, to God's point, God, the sages say that God is looking at the situation going, I've given you the world to come. Like, now is not the time to stop. Now is not the time to rest. You, you will rest later. And um, that's sort of where Jacob is. Jacob's trying to rest. He's a righteous dude. He's got more expected of him. His work's not done yet. Uh, Joseph, meanwhile, talk about small details. Um, Joseph's got himself a little bit of a problem. He has, he's a really smart kid. He's also a pretty wise kid. Um, and unfortunately, he has a pretty sharp tongue. Because one of the things that they highlight of him is that he gives evil reports about his brothers to his father. There's an odd, uh, is a Hebrew... Which, which evidently were truthful. They were truthful, but that doesn't matter. Um, we'll get to more of that in a second. Um, there's a funny little Hebrew thing here. We were, uh, if you look in your, well, if you have your Hebrew text, um, it says that he was a shepherd with his brothers by the flock. In Hebrew, there's a funny way of saying that, because the word with uh, is the olive tov, the et, which can mean with, according to my wife, who has also studied Hebrew. Um, it can also be a direct object pointer. In other words, the verb in this case, shepherding, is related to this noun, and the et is what links them. So it almost can read, he was a shepherd of his brothers, um, which there is, some, there is some good level to that, but unfortunately, Joseph seems to take it a little bit too far, 
because then he goes and speaks evil speech, the shon hara, literally an evil report in Hebrew, um, in this case, uh, to his father. And they say, this, I thought I was so blown away with this, Chabad.org pointed out that Joseph ends up spending 12 years in prison, and they tie it back to the fact that he spoke Lashon Hara about his brothers. Then they say that Jacob is, uh, loses his ability to connect with the, with the Spirit of God, like for prophecy and that kind of thing, for 22 years, which is the time that um, Joseph is away from him. And so they say that he who speaks Lashon Hara is punished once for his sin, but he who listens to Lashon Hara is punished twice. <laughs> so, um, going back again to like the small details. You, know, you might think to yourself, oh, well, it's, it's true. I can say it if it's true. But Joseph, Joseph there is, there's nothing wrong at some level to uh, going to elders when you have problems with a group. But there's a method to doing it. And it has to start with the person who's offended you first. And with Joseph, he kind of skipped a step and that burned him. So... Tough way to start for poor little Joseph. Um, <laughs> poor little Joseph. But he was a very handsome man, as we would later find out. Amen. Amen. I love the fact that we had, we had multiple Josephs reading this morning. That was fantastic. It was cool. Props to Brock for coordinating that. Props to Brock. Props to Brock. <laughs> but yeah, this, this portion, as we get into Joseph, I think that one of the things that a lot of um, believers have seen, Joseph parallels a lot with Messiah. So there's a lot of really cool stuff, and I hope that as you guys see those types of things, you, you, you holler them out, you point them out as we develop into them, um, as we get deeper into them. One of the things it says here that his brothers could not speak to him peaceably. And the, uh, the sages tie in on that one. They say, actually, this, I found this was very interesting. They compliment the brothers for that one. And the reason is because the brothers were not deceptive. They said the brothers hated him. They didn't pretend like they didn't hate him. They, they hated him. And so they wouldn't speak to him peaceably. So if you've ever heard the old, the old saying, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Um, well, in this case, if you don't mean what you're saying that's nice, maybe you should just say nothing at all. Um, and so, like, having that, that uh, I mean, ultimately, obviously, hating your brother in your heart is a sin. You shouldn't do that. So I think that, uh, ideally, you should resolve whatever the problem is internally and then be truthful and genuine all the way from the inside out. At the same time, there is a certain um, uh, benefit or blessing, I guess, for the brothers for at least being honest, <laughs> even if they were perhaps less than nice. So we have to be careful about the things that we're saying. You guys are quiet today. I, I have something to say about that. Okay, you say it out loud. It, it's, it's never, well, it's almost never the first offense that gets you in trouble is the cover-up. Mm. Cover-up really gets you in trouble. This is true. Mm. Yeah, really it's better just go ahead and admit, say, yeah, that happened. <laughs> and this, this, I feel like this is an example of how your envy isn't just something that you deal with. Mm. It does affect your relationship with the person that you're envying because it's mm. the brothers envy mm -hmm. him, and yeah. so therefore they can't speak peaceably with them. Right. So it's like it, whether you think it does or not, having any envy yeah. for something negatively affects the relationship. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because the sages talk about that concept they call it the evil eye, mm -hmm. um, and it's actually such a huge deal that Judaism teaches that you should even be careful about demonstrating the blessings that God has given you lest you encourage somebody else to be envious. Mm -hmm. Because when they're envious of you, it's hurting both of you. Okay. Which again, like I said, as you read this passage, I hope that you're looking for things that are, that are small. We've been studying Musar, um, which is the ethics in Judaism. Um, 
And there's a couple of different books. We're reading Mesalat Yashar with the men. Uh, some of the women have been reading um, Daily Everyday Holiness. Thank you. And uh, some of the men have been joining them in that reading. And I think one of the things is you start to study ethics, it takes me a lot back to the apostolic writings and to Yeshua and realizing that the small stuff matters because you might not think that it matters. You might think, well, I can, as, long as, I'm, as long as I'm not working on Shabbat and I'm not eating pork and, you know, check this box or that box, we're good. But, you know, if you're, if you're hating your brother in your heart, if you're jealous of the things that your, your brother has, if you're speaking evil speech, these things, these things matter. It's not just yeah. the things that you physically do, mm-hmm. but it's also the things that you're thinking, the things that you're feeling, the things that you're saying, things that you're listening to. It's interesting that this week's Musar character trait in the everyday holiness was staying quiet. <laughs> Silence. <Yeah. laughs> and, and, you know, you have to wonder why Joseph didn't. But if he was compelled to share these dreams, um, I, I had two things on the dreams that I wanted to share. One was I read from Likute Sukkot from uh, Torah Menachem. The other one was um, uh, one we probably heard every year, but it, it bears repeating for those who haven't heard it. Um, the second dream, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to him. And uh, we should be reminded that Jacob makes it clear that he is the sun and his wife is the moon, and the 11 stars, of course, are the 11 brothers. Um, but at this point, we should remember that the, the mother's dead. The mother has passed away. So we, we read the little things again in here shows us that Jacob is recognizing and affirming the resurrection, that at some point in time, he and his wife, who has already passed away, and the 11 brothers will bow down uh, to Joseph. And then uh, the other thing was uh, the, uh, the parallel between the dreams. Uh, Menachem says uh, that the first dream with the sheaves is about the physical. And the second one with the sun, moon, and the stars is about the spiritual. Hmm. And that for us, the, our physical and our spiritual affairs should not be separated. Hmm. They should be the same. You know, we should be the same person, whether we're at a Shabbat service or at Harris Teeter, not buying the pork sausage. So, mm-hmm. there and, and that both services to the one yeah. should be the same. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Physical and spiritual service to God. Right. Mm-hmm. One, one person. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, I see Micah's hand here. Um, yes, sir. In Rashi says that according to Jewish law, a person is prohibited from reporting a prophecy that he receives. Therefore, he is, his, is obligated to make his prophecy take a dream, which describes how he would rule over his brothers despite what the consequences might be. Mm, that's a good point, Micah. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Very Mrs. Martin, I hope that you will pass on to your husband that even when Mr. Martin is not here, Master Martin is a very worthy replacement. Step it up. Step it up. <laughs> so, if I heard that correctly, was he not obligated to share what yes. God had revealed to him? Yeah. Therefore, it would not be considered evil speech. On that one, but his previous comments, though, he was speaking evil of his brother's the actions behind their back. The and the problem with that, again, like I said, is I think that Yeshua teaches, and I think that there is legitimacy to 
addressing faults and even taking faults to people as authorities figures but there is a step-by-step process and jacob skips from confronting the person directly to going straight to authorities and i have to say i've i've been on probably both sides of gossip and things like that and it is an awful feeling when someone goes around you to tell something bad about you and you're thinking to yourself why didn't they just come to me we could have fixed it and that's that is the tragedy the sages say that gossip and evil speech kills three people it kills the person who says it the person who listens to it and the person about whom it is about so i mean it's a really dangerous thing it does a lot of damage so i think that's when we talk about evil speech you're right the the dream thing thing that you know there's there's maybe some legitimacy to joseph sharing those but i think that the problem was that joseph had spoken evil before and that is what he gets punished for is the way that he was commenting previously yes sir and, I and, uh, and well, I you look at like the trust issue in there too because being with his brothers, they probably were like, oh, he's our brother. Da, 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 da. They didn't mind doing these things in front of him. They didn't know he would go back. Oh, you mm. know what I mean? So, like, they're, they're trusting him, and then mm. they feel betrayed, mm. you know, by, uh, you know, I think they would have respected him more had he, like you said, gone to them, you know, like taught by Yeshua, gone to them and said, hey, guys, right. uh, look, you know Father wouldn't approve of this. You shouldn't be doing this. You said he's watching the flock. Why are you out here, you know? Doing whatever. Yeah, you know what I'm yeah. saying? So, and then, uh, but on the on the other hand, um, with Jacob, you know, you know, showing so much favoritism mm. towards Joseph in front of the brothers as well. Right. You know, you have the brothers looking at this and getting jealous. Now, there's no reason they should be. for them being jealous. Right. You know what I'm saying? But there's some things that you can... Feed, especially if you see the weakness of others, where he could have just kind of right. chilled on what he was doing with Joseph. Absolutely, you're right. Again, it gets back to the small stuff. Yeah. Um, it says in uh, the brothers, they said they hated Joseph in their heart. They hated Joseph, and that was a problem. Um, we see in Leviticus, it specifically says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in your heart. And they teach, actually, that the second temple was just, the first temple was destroyed for idolatry. And, and because of, well, not just idolatry, but also the, uh, the main thing was the not keeping the sabbatical year. Um, that's the 70 years. But then, so, but then the second temple generation was so much godlier than the first temple generation. They were, they were, the Pharisees and the, the groups were trying to get back to keeping the Torah completely. And yet, the second temple is also destroyed. Why was the second temple destroyed? For baseless hatred. So I'm just going to say it right now. If any of you guys, and I don't think this is true of any of us, but if any of you guys have an issue with somebody for no reason at all, and it's like, okay, get an issue with somebody because something they did to you, that'd be something to talk about. Let's work this one out. If you got an issue with somebody for no reason at all, you better get that one right. That's a big deal because that is uh, that's a really big deal to God. I mean, as, as Yeshua said, going back again to Musar, he says, if you hate your brother in your heart, it's like committing murder. So, pretty intense stuff. Um, going, oh, yes, Lori. Oh, and then I see Marianne in the back, too. Kind of tagging on what you just said about the exile. Um, it's kind of a different take on that, which is interesting. Um, Egypt's involved in both of those. Because, well, it's not really Egypt, but um, I don't know if anyone's heard of um, Ariel Kohen Aloro. Mm-hmm. He's an Orthodox, not a rabbi, but he's like a upper there, like Hasidic guy in Jerusalem and somehow through whatever he's come to like understand and know about Yeshua hmm. and Gematria. yeah and he's like a Gematria master and I haven't watched a ton about him yet but one thing one little video I did watch is um, 
but he's very outspoken about Yeshua. And he's like, he's very, real, very, very well respected around Jerusalem. And so a lot of people like listen to him and say, okay, normally they don't mention this guy, you know, this, they use the curse word, then, mm -hmm. you know, we, we just whatever. But this guy we listen to. So that said, he had an interesting take on the exile too, because he said, you know, for what. He said, uh, where are we going here? He said for the brothers um, selling selling Joseph, they were they were all exiled to Egypt. Hmm. And he said for us selling the son of Joseph. We were exiled out of the land too. Hmm. He drew a parallel between that too. It's an so interesting that's, thought. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Marianne. I'm at an age where I really don't care that much anymore about you know gossip about me or something. You know? Oh, there we go. <laughs> and I wondered about um, let's see, Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph that contributed, not that it excuses him being anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Jacob definitely makes some mistakes there. Um, it, I mean, let's again, we get back to the Torah. The Torah teaches that, like, the first, the son you're supposed to honor with the firstborn blessing was the actual firstborn, whether you love the wife more or less or not. And I think that Jacob has an error there. Um, and like I said before, I think this is one of the things we need to be, I hope that we remember. These are small details. Like, in the big line of things, Jacob is a super righteous dude. Like, and that's part of why God holds him to such a high standard. And why he and, the, and Joseph and the brothers, who are also considered very righteous by the sages, all get held to these high standards. They get punished for what seems like small things because they, are, they know better. It's like Yeshua says, if you, you know, too much is given, much is required. So um, I think that's also true for us. You know, those of us who study this room, this is an amazing room. I mean, I have never in my entire life been surrounded by so many men who care about God. I've never in my entire life been surrounded by so many people that can get up and deliver a lesson or can give a sermon or can lead a group or whatever. And uh, that means that we have a lot of responsibility. We have a lot going for us, but that also means that we have a lot to do. So um, I think one of the things as we, as we kind of move forward here, it says that uh, Jacob, it says Israel sends Joseph. And the Israel name is interesting because Israel is oftentimes associated with, like, the God's divine plan. It's like, this is the way it's supposed to be. And Israel's one who sends Joseph to go to, to looking for his brothers. So the sages grab in on this, and they're like, okay, see, this, this was intentional. This is God's plan. And actually, they even go so far as to say that when he's wandering around Shechem, he can't find his brothers. The man he meets is actually an angel. Uh, and the angel is telling him, you know, what are you looking for? And he says, looking for my brothers. And he says, they're over here. Now, if you think about that, what's, what's going to happen? We know what's going to happen next. His brother's going to find him. They're going to throw him in a pit. They're eventually going to sell him. We have basically two decades, well, almost two, a decade and a half of Joseph's life is going to be awful because of these next set of events. And yet God is intentionally orchestrating them on purpose. Mm -hmm. He's, there's a chance it won't happen. Joseph's wandering around checking. He can't find his brothers anywhere. He could have just walked back home and the whole thing would have never happened. But what did we learn by the end of the story? Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I was sent here for the saving of your households. In other words, God's got a plan all the time and the smallest details are being divinely orchestrated for us. 
Yes, sir. I, I just want to make sure everybody understood what your opening comment there was, that it used Israel rather than Jacob. Oh, he's right. The only, he's the only guy that uses the other name. Right. Most people that are renamed, they that's flip. it. Yeah. Abraham is always Abraham. Sarai is always Sarah kind of thing. Right. But he is one or the other, and to your point, depending on whether it's him or a prophetic kind of deal. Right, exactly. And the angel thing was really helpful because I just remember each time coming across this being like, how did he know who his brothers <laughs> were? Or how did he know where they went? It said, I think the Archbishop translation where he was like blundering or something like that. But now, that actually does make sense that he was a messenger sent specifically to yeah. direct Joseph to the right place. Eleven guys, a lot of sheep. I know who you're talking about. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, very true. Did I see a hand? Um, yeah, Kofi was sharing something last night, so unfortunately I don't remember the actual name of the source, but he was, along the same lines, he was saying, um, whenever lots of bad things happen in your life and then something kind of good happens, it's a sign that God's in control, like all right. Like, okay, so Joseph gets thrown in a pit, that's bad, and they leave him to die, that's bad. <laughs> he gets sold, that's pretty bad, but instead of being all sorts of crazy nastiness they could have been carrying, it was sweet spices and fragrance. That's right. pretty good. Like, hey, yeah. I got thrown out of pit and sold, but I'm in a really nice smelling caravan. That's got to be a good thing. Right, and the sages teach, because they, okay, they, they, uh, those of you who haven't heard this, the, the full commentary, the sages say that the Ishmaelites, who, um, I think it's Ishmaelites, and the, there's another group there too, Midianites, who bought Joseph and took him off, is they normally carry really stinky stuff in their caravan. They were just, that's what they sold. Um, yeah, probably, yeah, there we go. Good piece. So we got the Arabs selling petroleum. They've been doing that for a long time. Um, so they smelled, it smelled stinky normally. And then this time they were carrying perfumes. And so to, to Rebecca's point, God was emphasizing to Joseph, hey, don't worry, I'm in charge. I'm going to take care of the details. I remember one time when I was in, uh, uh, in, in Israel, I had my apartment broken into, which if you've ever been robbed, it's a horrific feeling. You're very confused. You feel violated. And you feel very uncertain. Things like your security is just gone. Um, and I remember how shocked and horrified I was but it was so cool because I, what really helped me was seeing the small things that God protected. Uh, yeah. You know, I had I had backed up my entire laptop, which was stolen, into my external hard drive, and whoever broke in had picked up the hard drive and then thought second of it and just left it on the floor, which was amazing to me because it's a, you know multi hundred dollar piece of electronic equipment. This is back in the day when those were more expensive than they are now. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like I was surprised that they didn't take it with them. And I really saw that as kind of like, you know, like a Job kind of thing. God's like, okay, here you can go, but no further. And that really was encouraging, like with Joseph, to see, okay, you know what? Something awful has happened, but God's still in charge. And he is still merciful, even in the midst of, of difficulty. This week, well, we were talking about it one morning about how it seems odd to say, going back to the, the pit, how it seems odd to say, and they threw him in the pit, and there was no water. Mm -hmm. Like the pit was yeah. empty, and there was no water. Mm -hmm. To like sort of because it sounds like it means the same thing, but the midrash says they, it says there was no water in it because it was filled with snakes and scorpions, mm -hmm. which is yet another miracle right. that he was sustained despite this awful yeah. circumstance. Right. Mm -hmm. yes, exactly. The uh, the sages go off of that, and and say, well, how, I mean, Reuben must have known that a pit in this area that was empty you know, would have snakes and scorpions in it. So how is he actually helping his brother? That was the whole idea, right? He thinks this is going to be better than leaving him in the hands of his brothers. And they say, actually the Zohar uh, says, uh, well, the brothers have free will. 
The snakes and scorpions do not. <laughs> They're controlled by Hashem. Let me fall into God's hands, but let me not fall into exactly man's right. hands. Exactly right. Thank you, King David. You bet. Mm-hmm. There you go. And Sholem Arush, Rabbi Sholem Arush, actually texts off of that in his book, The Garden of Munat, and he says that it's for that reason that Reuben put, had Joseph born in the pit because he said, you know, I want Joseph, like, Joseph can cry out to Hashem this way, but he might try and plead to the brother for mercy. Mm. But the mm. brothers aren't in control. I mean, mm-hmm. they have their free will to choose, right. but ultimately God's in control. So mm-hmm. if he's pleading to the brothers, that was something doing good. He needs to cry out to God. Right. That God would redeem him. So that was part of his whole little lesson reading through the book again. It's really good. About, like, everything that happens to us in life is, is a stick in the hand of God. Right. And so we shouldn't appeal to the stick. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We should appeal, to, we should appeal to Hashem. Right. So, in that sense, that's. Joseph, he knew that Joseph was a righteous man. He would cry out to God. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. He did. Yeah. Jesse. Totally. It's like the story of the, um, Gregory told this man, a really good story about the Baal Shem Tov. He went to a guy's house for Shabbat, some poor little farmer, um, you know, ate all his food, stayed for a week. They went totally broke, had to sell the farm. And then the, finally, Baal Shem Tov, just he's done. He gets up and he leaves at the end of the week. And they're like, and his disciples are all like, what? What? "What? Why did you do that? Like this poor little farmer, you made him go through all of his money, and and like he trying to take care of you, and then you weren't even very grateful when you left. Like what happened?" And his rabbi, his balsam toes leaving, he's like, what, "What's that? Is he said? Is he saying that the farmer?" He just turns around and says, "Oh, by the way, I'm the balsam toe. Ask anything of God you want, and it'll be given to you." And so then they leave. So the farmer then he's desperate at this point. His his farm is supposed to be taken over by the bank in like two days. So he goes out to the middle of the forest and he's just crying out to God to to help him out and um this is the one with the crazy beggar right so the drunkard of the town shows up and he's um he's like you know kind of not all there and and he comes up to the guy and he's like the farmer he says i'm I'm about to die and you're the only one who's ever been nice to me everyone else calls me bad names and whatever else and so i want you to have my fortune that's buried in a tree and the guy's like come on like really and sure enough like then like the next day the day the bank's supposed to take possession of the of the farm the old beggar dies, the old drunkard dies, and the, guy, the farmer's like, well, might as well at least check, you never know. <laughs> he goes out there, and sure enough, the tree is full of treasure. And he's able to, to pay off the bank. He actually ends up able to become super wealthy. So down the road, he shows up to the Balsham Tov's house um, in a carriage. You know, he's all wealthy now. And he meets the Balsham Tov, and he's like, you know, I'm really grateful for the blessing, but, but why did you do that? And the Balsham Tov told him, it was decreed from the beginning that you would be a wealthy man. But you never asked God for it. <laughs> so I had to come and wipe you totally destitute so that you would finally ask God for the wealth that he was supposed to give you. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of like goes back to James. You know, you do not have because you do not ask. And uh, so to your point, yes, we should be looking to Hashem in the midst of our difficulties. Yes, Micah. I was thinking about the part where Ruben heard him Yeah, brothers are brothers gotta care for each other. 
Yeah, especially the oldest one. The oldest one's kind of a big deal. You know, it's interesting because talk about small details and God punishing you. I think I read somewhere recently that um, that uh, Shimon is the one who throws Joseph into the pit. And so in return, Shimon is also thrown into a pit uh, later in life. Um, in fact, uh, earlier we read, it's funny because you, said, you read that uh, it says these are the generations of Jacob, and the next word is Joseph. They say that Jacob and Joseph were also very much paralleled. And they had like, the Chabad.org had like 40 different things that lined up between them. The funniest ones to me was that Jacob's father-in-law was blessed on his account. And Joseph, who according to tradition marries the daughter of Potiphar, his father-in-law was blessed on his account. And at the end of his life, or the beginning of his life, Jacob cared for Joseph for 17 years. And at the end of his life, Joseph cared for Jacob for 17 years. So there's a, there's a lot of interesting parallels there. Uh, but again, going back to like those details, that God is in charge of the details. Another measure for measure thing was Jacob deceived his father yeah, that's with, right. a goat. with a goat with a goat in a and garment he gets deceived exactly he gets deceived because they use a goat's blood to put on Jacob's clothes the yeah. and they deceive him and then it even goes so far as to say like it's a goat that is the exchange that that he's going to give Tamar right. so Judah ends up getting right. deceived with a goat so it's like it's just measure yeah. for measure down the line yeah exactly that goes back again to the small stuff because if you look at according to I think I've heard one of the tradition about the garment the garment is actually the same garment that Esau had worn that is Jacob, what he's wearing when he deceives oh, really? Isaac. Oh, oh um, man. Because that's, the, that's the, the, the garment that they dipped in the blood, yeah. the garment that Jacob gave his son, is the same garment that he wore to deceive his father. Because Esau had stolen it from... Because wow. according to the one tradition, Esau gets the garment from Nimrod. Right. The garment was originally the one that God clothed Adam with. And Nimrod, who is like post-Noah, he's like the, the overlord of the day, he acquires it. Esau kills him as a hunter, because Esau is also a hunter, and Esau takes it. Well, then later, Jacob ends up with it, and so on and so forth. This you know, is, enough, it's kind I of a superhero same, story. I have that same cloak right now. In <laughs> it's it's astonishing. Anyway, John, John. I thought it said that he made it. Well, that could, yeah. yeah. That's well, probably that, more true. Did the scripture say he made it? Well, I, I did notice that that was... I don't know what the uh, the whole story is there, but anyway. I'm just asking. It does seem to remember that. It does seem to. Maybe he added a fringe. He may have added a fringe to it. Right, there we go. Because it's incomplete prior to that. Johnny's been Johnny, yes, sir. On this whole topic of measure for measure, I really sort of appreciated when the brothers are sort of sitting around a campfire, if you will, and they're as it were, Joseph's down in the hole and they're they're discussing what to do with the guy and, you know, maybe we shouldn't kill him and maybe we should kill him and blah, 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 blah. All this is going on. Well, while they're, you know, basically sitting around eating, well, what happens later, you know, Joseph, he's basically, this is returned upon them when, you know, it, their fate is basically being decided basically at a meal. When mm -hmm. he brings them into their in, mm -hmm. into the Egypt, and so there's just this whole portion is that's just one of the coolest examples I thought how you know their fate is being decided over a, over a, a meal as it were while Joseph's was previously by them, mm -hmm. and um, this whole this whole portion is filled with measure for measure things. It's it, it really is. And as you get into um, the story of Judah and Tamar, you mentioned the, the, the goat and whatnot. And in the same language, of course, is parallel because 
they come to, to Jacob and says, see, if you please, this is your son's garment. And then later, Tamar gives the exact same language back to Judah. See, if you please, whose are these? And, um, and, and that actually, it really, you can see it. Judah, Judah's a different guy there. God is so good because God puts things in our lives, and the goal is always repentance, going back to Shlomo Arush. The point is never that God's trying to beat you up for your sins. The point is always to get you to repent. So when Tamar uh, confronts Judah, and they have this, this event in Judah's life, you can see he's a completely different man after that. He immediately recognizes Tamar's justness in the cause right. and acknowledges the situation there and does what he's supposed to do. But then later on, he's the hero at the end of the story, which we'll see in, in the upcoming power show. He's the one who puts himself on the line. <clears throat> While Judah was probably trying to save Joseph earlier, he wasn't willing to throw himself out there. He kind of came with a kind of a creative but not so good way of saving Joseph. So now we see that he is really stepping up, and that makes him worthy to be the, the forebearer of the leading tribe of, of the tribes of Israel. Yes, sir. I, I just uh, I, I think it's important for us coming out of uh, a traditional expression of Christianity um, where oftentimes we hear that the sages are you know destined for hell they don't trust in Messiah and and so on uh, but as I read the the commentary in my uh, Bible here Rashi explains the simple reason why the Torah begins to speak of Yehuda in the middle of the story of Yosef. But why would that be? And it's to teach us, he says, that Yehuda's brothers demoted him from his high position. However, Rashi does not explain why the entire account of Yehuda and Tamar was recorded here, leading up to the birth of Peretz and Zerach. According to the explanation of the Midrash, we can understand that the account of Yehuda and Tamar was included here to explain the reason why Yosef was sold. Because God was paving the way for Mashiach. Hmm. Right. Very nice. There it is. Very cool. And quite frankly, we know that because they knew that. Right. This is true. Yes, sir. Um, right before the story with Judah and Tamar, it talked about how um, he re uh, Jacob refused to be comforted and this period mm. of mourning for him. Yeah. And again, like this, there was this week, I felt like specifically there were several things on Chabad from the Midrash that just helped explain so much for me. And because that that's odd, like we know that grief should have an end. A lot mm -hmm. of times, like, especially when Joseph dies, right? They grieve for a certain period of time, mm -hmm. and then that's it. Like even Judaism understands that, but it doesn't seem like that doesn't seem like there's an end here. And the Midrash says that's because when a person does actually die that's close to you, God will send comfort. But he doesn't do that if the person's still alive. Huh. And Joseph is still alive. Ah, so that's cool. Comfort Jacob. And I think that's so cool because it also talks about Yeshua's famous quote, like, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, yeah. It's the same promise huh. that, they're, that they're getting from this particular that's, Cool. That's very that's cool. Neat. I like that. That's very a nice. good one for this year. I'm writing that one down. That was a good one. Yes, sir. I see one of the ways that this prepares the way for Mashiach, according to Chaim Kramer, who is affiliated with Breslov, is the concept of descent for the sake of ascent. Mm. And that essentially means you can't go, you can't be ascended or, or go high spiritually um, without descending first. Mm. into trials, tribulations, troubles, mm. suffering, etc. And this is a rule. 
Uh, in the scriptures, for example, you know, Joseph was destined to ascend, but the level that he's at now will not let him ascend high. Because mm. if you're already um, if you're already up there spiritually, you need to be brought low first before you can ascend to even higher levels. So Joseph had to descend into the pits of Mitzrayim and the pits of uh, false accusations and prison and being forgotten and all of that before he could ascend to the heights of not only Mitzrayim, which is, is a sort of okay, but also as the redeemer of, of Israel and God's people. Um, and this is also seen where Israel, when they're leaving, uh, well, when they're in Mitzrayim, they're, they go down to the 49th level, the 49th gate of impurity, which is the last one you could get to before you're completely done. And so that once you get there, the only one who can redeem you is God when you're down that far. And we see that, that God then takes them out of Egypt. And because they had fallen so low, then correspondingly, their ascent is incredibly high to where now... 40 days later, they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, mm. receiving the Torah. Mm. But then we see a descent again with the golden calf, um, and that they fall down lower. And then, but uh, correspondingly again, every time there's a descent, there's always an ascent. Mm. And so the ascent after they sin with the golden calf is um, Moshe intercedes for them. And now we get the 13 attributes of mercy, hmm. uh, which would have never been given had they not descended to that level of the golden calf. Hmm. Um, so likewise, Chaim Kramer says that in order for the Mashiach to be revealed, Israel, the Jews nowadays worldwide, it seems are in a really terrible, awful place. Why? Because we're getting close to the time when the ascent of the revelation of Mashiach is going to come. So the worst off it seems to get in worldwide Jewry, the in, infighting, backbiting, divisions of hmm. orthodox, conservative, reform, constructionists, <laughs> non-religious, atheists, and whatever, the worst off it gets, the, that just means the ascent is going to be even higher. And not only that, but that's for each personal life as well, individually, that the worst off your life seems to get, then that just means your ascent is going to be even greater. And that can happen all, all throughout your life. You go down, that just means you're about to go up. Yeah, so it really reinforces the idea that there's there's always time to repent. Mm -hmm. Right, and not to say that we encourage obviously that people get down in the in the dumps from a sin perspective, but to say that like that you there's not a, there. you can, and that's the point is that there's never like things are not hopeless. And I think that's one thing that I really appreciate about the Breslov group is they really emphasize the fact that there's always hope. They they basically um, I read one quote and I can't remember where I read it, but it was something like. Um, they said that depression is not a sin, but what it does, no sin can do. In other words, the point being that like it's one of the worst things that can be in your life is to be depressed and despairing, and because then you prevent you cut yourself off from God. Mm. So the point to, to Taylor's point is to say that there's always hope. That even when you're down the at the bottom, then once you, it, by re, through repentance and you know faith in Hashem, He can take you to even higher places than before. Yes, sir. And then I see a couple others. I've got a question about this this story within a story with Tamar. She showed amazing uh, restraint and risk by withholding that information until mm -hmm. the last moment. Yeah. And, and wisdom. Uh, mm. And my question is, do you think, or has anybody commented on the fact that when Joseph shared, we, we already said when he shared his, the truth about the 
you know, the sun, the moon, and, and the sheaves. Um, <laughs> the way it was, I mean, it's true, but the way it was presented may, may not have been the, the best timing or whatever. In her case, it was exactly the opposite. The timing and, and the wisdom that she showed Perfect. was unbelievable. It was life-saving. It was, yes. And, well, and then they, the sages, to their credit, they, Rosh, um, I'm sorry, uh, the sages tie in another element there because they jump on that point and they say that um, that not only does she wait, but then she's, she doesn't even specify who it is. She says, I am a child by whom these are. In other words, she puts it on Judah to admit to it. It was up to Ju- He could have very easily said, oh, I don't know what that is. You know, burn her, you know? And then, you know, the witness goes down to the grave. Like, it was very easy for... Um, Theoretically, for Judah to have buried the whole thing, literally. Uh, but Tamar, um, to the quote that I've got here in this commentary, says, If he admits it voluntarily, well and good. If not, let them burn me, but let me not publicly disgrace him. Because that, again, goes back to Lashon Hurrah. Because it's one thing to speak to stab somebody in the back in private. That's bad enough. When you publicly humiliate someone or embarrass them, that's a really big deal. In fact, they even we were reading in the Meslat Yisharim recently, they're quoting from the Talmud, that you should even be careful if you're rebuking someone like for legitimate reasons that they don't get, that they don't get red-faced. red-faced. In other words, it's like you need to be always aware of, of circumstances, location, whatever else in in way that you speak to people even. Because some, cause it would be easy, you know, like, okay, we won't speak badly about someone behind their back. But to their face, I can say whatever I want. That's not true. Again, the tongue is very, very powerful, as it says, and I think in Proverbs, that life and death is in the power of the tongue. So, yeah. So you, and then you. Um, earlier, we were talking about the descent. That also causes uh, uh, self-reflection mm-hmm. and analyzation. Yeah. Um, it causes you to look at yourself, like you know, what did I do? How could I have right. gotten to this place? You know, and it causes you to look at yourself. And, you know, during those times of despair, Joseph could have thought about those things that he did with his brothers, you know, the, the, the way that, you know, he handled the situation with his brothers, also knowing that it was directed by the Most High, but at the same time seeing, you know, uh, how that animosity between his brothers could have been bred, but how it could have been caused by some of his own actions. Hmm. And, you know, through that, learned how to be, uh, like Yeshua was a servant leader. You know, like I'm, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to ascend past this in order to, to, to be better than that. Mm-hmm. You sir, uh, I had a question. You know, similar about the Tamar story. What's with the Adulamite, you know, friend? Hira. Yeah, I mean, all he does is he tries to give the goat. But like, why, why was it such? Why was it so important to mention him? I think three times. And he's a swanky guy. Apparently, but you know why? Why does why in this story do they mention him specifically? I was wondering if anybody knew. How do you mean? I I don't know. Could be because I mean he was sent on a somewhat embarrassing mission. <laughs> I mean, you show up in a town. Uh, my friend goats, is uh. Like, hey, is there a Yeah, <laughs> 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 it's a rough place. Oh, oh okay, yeah, just checking. <laughs> It's for a friend. <laughs> this is not my goat. <laughs> it doesn't look. That's not what it looks like. So the, the character development of him, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> um, the character development could be very deep there of how loyal you are. Uh, plus, 
because he's going to be included if they get made a laughing stock. That's him too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the servant is loyal to his master. I think the sages do comment that um, they call him his friend right around there, and they're like, they, they, he proves that he's a good friend. He proves. <laughs> um, at the same time, though, I wouldn't be. I think just from as I was reading it, just this this time around, I noticed it's interesting that he makes this friend, and then all of his problems start up. Which, not to say, not to critique it um, here unnecessarily and unnecessarily, but did make me wonder. Like, he's making a friend with what appears to be a pagan Canaanite, and it's like, maybe that wasn't the best choice of friends. Because he, then he gets married to someone who has birth to at least two kids who turned out pretty bad. So it's like, it seems like Judah's, like, issues kind of start out of that. And going back to, like, you know, bad company corrupts good morals, it's like, even, because pagans can be very good friends. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a good company to keep. Mm-hmm. I, I would certainly argue that um, making a friend of someone who may not know God and having your righteousness rub off on him is normally never a bad thing. I mean, he certainly taught his friend, the Adulamite, that you got to be good for your word. <laughs> well, so true. he sends him with you. I mean, that's that's cool. And then later on, he surely found out what happened with Tamar and the whole deal. So it, it could have been a you know, watershed event for him. But I want to go back to what, uh, I guess what Nehemiah was saying a minute ago um, about Joseph potentially having the opportunity to consider, you know, the cheshbon nefesh, the, the accounting of his soul and looking back and seeing where he's messed up and stuff. And, and per, I don't think it violates the scripture or even what Michael was quoting from Rashi that um, he couldn't hold back these prophecies. If you've been given a prophecy by God, you've got to speak it. That doesn't mean he couldn't have come up with a better way to say it. He couldn't have reflected upon that. Mm. And, you know, I'm flabbergasted at Joseph's management of Mitzrayim when he's finally elevated. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is known worldwide as a very wise guy, He's, I mean, he's respected by his enemies, he's respected by his friends, he's respected by the Egyptians. Eventually, he's actually respected by his brothers. But, I mean, he seems to, I think, you're right, he did reflect and learn and perhaps change his, his manner of speech a little bit and, and got very clever and creative with speaking in Hebrew, speaking in Egyptian, not speaking in Hebrew when he could have spoken in Egyptian, keeping the eye makeup on, you know. Johnny <laughs> Just to jump back to the story of Judah and Tamar, I don't, I didn't read anything that explained how the timing worked out and all that, but it was the the uh, midrash commented on this whole situation that helped me really, really understand Tamar's intentions a lot more because they say that she was like a top shelf prophetess, and the reason that. And this is so cool, but the reason that she requests from him when he says, like, what shall I give you as a pledge? She requests his signet, his cord, and his staff. And the reason is because all three of those are prophetic, like, foreshadowings of the seed that will come from her, which is the, the signet represents the, the kingship of David and mm-hmm. David himself. And then the cord represents the Sanhedrin. And then the staff represents Mashiach. Mm-hmm. And so she, having known this, and, and again, right when you receive a prophecy, you have to speak it out, so she did. But like, having known that, she had this, like, I, I, I could imagine that she probably wasn't afraid 
in throughout this whole situation, even though it was very scary, and you know, there's this pronouncement of death that's been made upon her when they hear the news, but I'm sure she focused her attention and had faith in God that this was going to work out for the best because she had this knowledge previously. And they, they also say that she was very modest, and when a woman covers herself in the presence of her father-in-law, in, in her father-in-law's household, then they merit to be the mother of kings and prophets, which she was also. So there's just like two of those things that help explain her character so much better that as Judah eventually says, she is more righteous than I. That is like definitely um, true. <laughs> cool. Um, I think this part. Okay. Other right. <laughs> um, moving forward in the story to when Joseph's in the house of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, you know, has weird designs of it. Uh, what you're saying earlier about the details, it, here, there's another little detail that is, you know, almost one of the big reasons why Potiphar believes his wife's story, or at least the servants believe the story, is the garment that he left. <laughs> if he had just He's taken that with garment clothes. with him, you know, the servants and potentially Potiphar may not have believed fully the wife's story. Mm. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. That yeah, again, a small wife. detail, but it was a good detail. Mm -hmm. I think, Micah, did you have your hand up? Did you want to say something? Go ahead. I was thinking that it's funny that they say the Adamite man's name three times, but they don't say who his wife anytime. Oh, you're right. Yeah, that is interesting. Judah, Judah's wife. Her name is not mentioned. No, it says that's her father-in-law, or her father, Shua. Good point. Shua's daughter. My mom had her hand up. This morning, Dad and Judah and I were discussing all this, and I'm trying to remember which sage he was quoting, but he was saying that Tamar was given the prophecy that she would be the mother of the line of the Messiah, and that she was a righteous woman, and that what she did, because in the, in the version he was reading, they say because of Levite um, law was why she was supposed to marry the brothers, which obviously we know had not come about yet. And based on Levite law, she shouldn't have had relations with her father-in-law. That all, all that got twisted, much like the fact that later on, Ruth's a Moabite. I mean, we've got all kinds of mess that goes on. Daddy went through and explained the other four women mm -hmm. in the size line. But that Tamar, she saved herself from any other as she waited for the youngest son. And then after she had relations with Judah, she never had relations again. Mm -hmm. And it was to fulfill just that giving mm -hmm. of the one that would be of the line of Messiah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty pretty intense. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So back to Nehemiah's point about uh, Joseph making a uh, repentance and stuff about his formalities. Because the Midrash has this really cool um, quote in it that says something like, the tribes were all busy when Joseph was sold into slavery. And they say Joseph was busy fasting and praying over um, his sins because he, he's being punished for something. And um, the tribes, or uh, Reuben is, is fasting and praying over his sin. And Jacob's fasting and praying over the loss of Joseph. And Jacob, yeah, Jacob. And then Judah is busy looking for a wife and God is busy creating the light of Mashiach. Hmm. And so this, this idea of tomorrow with Mashiach and stuff hmm. like that, um, it's, the first, it's the first time in the Torah where you get the word for uh, a guarantee. And, and the, hmm. the, 
commentary is all about how Mashiach is a guarantee for the world, mm. and how those three items they all point to Mashiach. Um, they all point to uh, almost like a perfection of of a man. If you those are the three areas a man falls with most. I think it's um, I know one of them's evil speech, mm. one of them's um, like immorality, and I don't remember what the other one is. But they jealous. What was that jealousy? Or theft. Theft was the other. Theft. theft. This is like covers. Sure, right. And so they all they all point to that. Like mm-hmm. um, the seal, be like the seal of holiness for immorality. The cloak is like a cloak of honor. So you honor your pe- your friends instead of speaking against them. And the staff represents the staff of Moses, which is the staff of faith. Um, stuff like that. But yeah, all points to Messiah. She's asked. So she asks Judah for his guarantee, but it's really like asking Judah for Mashiach. Cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yes. Wait till he gets married. It's going to be better. <laughs> I know. I told Pete this week at his at his uh, uh, rehearsal dinner that we always get excited when he brings doctors to speak. So he needs to keep speaking. Um, as we get into, we're getting towards the end here, so I want to keep us moving into the, the story. Um, the sages point out something kind of... Um, Joseph has a little bit of a, of a down point here. It says that he... Um, uh, they comment that he was handsome of form and handsome of appearance. And one of the things that they say is that this, about this time, Joseph kind of notices that too. It's like, ooh, I'm a good-looking guy. And he starts like taking care of himself, kind of make him look like an Egyptian, make himself look really good, and that's when he catches the wife of Potiphar's eye. And, um, and so just getting into that concept, it's like there's definitely a danger to arrogance, um, letting, letting yourself kind of get filled with, you know, ooh, I'm looking really good. Um, and, uh, and that kind of ends up turning into a lot bigger mess. And again, like I said, small thing. This is a small thing in the grand scale of stuff. But Joseph is a righteous, very righteous man. He is up there in his knowledge and faith of Hashem. And so he gets held to a really high standard. Bad things happen when we, when we break even the smallest of commandments. Two quick things about part of our wife incident. Um, first, just because it's juxtaposed with the Tamar incident, they uh, they say that Tamar acted for the sake of heaven, mm-hmm. and Potiphar's wife acted for the sake of heaven as well. She's not held responsible um, for hmm. what she did because she knew through prophecy that uh, she was to have children through Joseph, hmm. but she didn't realize that it was through her daughter <laughs> right. and not her. Um, so <laughs> she was just trying to bring about the will of God. In fact, no, no. One of the I, Rashi kind of just like glosses right over this this point, but he says um, it says at one point like Joseph refused to day after day she kept trying and Joseph refused to lie beside her or to be with her, and he's like he wouldn't even lie beside her and he wouldn't be with her in the world to come, <laughs> meaning that she would be in the world to come, huh. but he wouldn't if he made that mistake oh. um, because she's. Like she didn't, she wasn't doing anything wrong. Anyway, um, uh, boy, talk about speaking the best about someone. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, yeah, the first time I've heard that about Potiphar's wife. But it's interesting you brought up the, the looking good thing because they say like he started curling his hair and everything, seeing that it looked good, and so then the wife started making advances, and then he leaves his garment when he runs away from her, and they make a correlation between that because he started off like worried about his appearance and then that brought him into a huge test 
and the only way that he ended up getting away from that test was not caring about his appearance mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Nagwan especially makes a very big point about not caring about the clothes you wear, basically. Like, um, Joseph left the clothes there because it didn't matter to him what he was wearing, or even if he would go naked, it didn't matter. And so then that's how he got out of a, the temptation for mm-hmm. the lust and stuff. Yeah, they also point out that like he, um, you got to be careful about it. flee also youthful lusts is a quote from Paul. Um, uh, he, he literally runs away, but he actually almost got into trouble because he was in the house, mm-hmm. talking about like being alone with a woman mm-hmm. kind of situation. If he had stayed away from the house that day, that mm-hmm. incident would not have occurred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just went out of my head. Oh, and I'm sorry. I do. I love his response though. His response. Wasn't even how could I just That's sin what I against Potiphar? Right. It was like how could I do this evil, right? Yeah. And sin against God. Right. How could, how could I do that? Right? Exactly. It, you know, it's. I think that is. Uh, that's huge because when we go further and we look in uh, Mishle in Proverbs, we see that Solomon says that the uh, that the adulterer right sins against himself. Mm-hmm. You know. And and mm-hmm. cause what he he kills his own soul he destroys his own soul mm-hmm. and so to see and then further even further in Jeremiah uh, one of the one of the complaints that the Most High has against Israel is he says that everyone neighs after his neighbor's wife you know mm-hmm. and then here you see this character attribute in Joseph and not not saying how can I sin against myself uh, but, or just that he also said you know. Potiphar has held everything from me. The only thing he's held from me is you. Withheld from me is you. He's given me everything else. The only thing he's withheld from me is you. How can I do this evil and sin against God? Mm-hmm. He didn't say sin against Potiphar. He right. said sin against God. Yeah. You know, and that that's I mean that's, that's powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, that's all. Yes, sir. That was a really cool connection. The word that they used for when Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife, which appears three times there in the passage. There's a really cool connection the sages make, and they say that um, it was in the merit of Joseph's bones that the Red Sea was split when they came out of Egypt. And how did they explain this? It was, they picked up on the, the verbiage that's used when it says the waters fled, okay? So when Joseph is actually fleeing the presence of Potiphar's wife, mm. he's essentially fleeing from evil. Well, later when the Israelites are being pursued, they're fleeing the evil Egyptians. Mm. So, and why does it say, not just in Joseph's merit, but in his bones, but that's the, that should be the strongest part of our bodies. Mm. That's where our faith is. It's, it's unyielding, it's strong. So, which we've, mm. we've seen several comments about the strength of Joseph's faith thus, mm. ju- thus far. So it was his bones, which they brought out of Egypt with them, uh, which, you know, I'm not sure we can take it literally or anything, but they said that it was in the merit of Joseph's bones mm. that the waters fled. fled. Well, that, that is consistent with what uh, we read in, uh, in the prophets, where the guys are burying somebody, and some marauding bandits come along, so they run off, and... Throw the dead guy. Throw the dead guy. (laughs) He stands up. You know. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Taylor was next. I had a question. um, Maybe a little weird question, 
Ooh, I like weird questions. <laughs> Regarding the dreams right. that these guys had, what role should you know dreams have in our lives? Like, how much stock should we put in dreams? Trying to seek out interpretation of dreams, trying to pray for interpretation of dreams, because there there is significant usage of dreams mm -hmm. within the scriptures that seem to just kind of carry on. But I mean, I just come from a background where you don't you don't talk about that stuff. So. Right. Um, does anyone have a comment on that one? I have a comment on that. Okay. Um, do dreams like that occur around the time of a redeemer? Like you're saying, is it like a specific time period? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe. Uh, interestingly enough, actually Judaism, um, I found this, I can't remember where I found it. I think it's a quote, a section from the Talmud. They actually have a list of what all of the different elements in a dream mean. Um, it's uh, it's pretty extensive. I was really surprised. It's like if you see a horse, then it means this, and if you see a donkey, it means this. <laughs> and it's like they go through the whole long list. And um, I don't know how much all that all that really means, to be honest with you. Um, I haven't had too many dreams that have come true. I've had a couple that seem to be prophetic, believe it or not. Um, and uh, what do you do with that? But I think, well, first off, I don't think it's. I think anytime you're dreaming, it's always a good opportunity to just kind of take account, take a take a you know heshbon nefesh, kind of look at yourself and go. What could this have meant? And to see if there's anything positive out of it, just like as you know, if you if you see any incident that occurs in life, it's a good opportunity to kind of see, you know, find the inner intelligence, as as, uh, as Nachman would say, of the situation. Uh oh. All right, just don't move. Sit up on the couch. Cause glass got glass here and this little right, here too. Just keep going. Um. So. Uh, oh yeah, that was a piece right underneath your foot. So yeah, I think the dreams. Um, I think the dreams do have uh, potential for relevance. It doesn't. I don't think it hurts to, to look into them. Yeah. Um, I think the danger would be certainly to. Um, uh, obviously, there are certain things that dreams can't mean, um, and I think the danger sometimes is maybe to possibly put too much stock in a dream or to make a decision strictly because of a dream without really having like a lot of. You know what I'm saying? Like, you might make a foolish decision because of a dream. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't think it's a problem to, to investigate them, to think about them, to ask about them, to talk about them. Sure. I mean, dreams show up a lot. And in some cases, dreams are quite important. I think there's a piece just to your right there, right above your hand. On the table? Uh, no, underneath the table, directly. Maybe not. Ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> I would check around the curve that I could have fallen into your curve. I actually got the wrong answer. I got the I got the base here. I just destroyed the base. Yeah, I do it a second time. Oh, when you broke the glass and yeah, you Yeah, I, I broke the, the base of it. Uh, so make sure whoever puts it down, he's like, no. It's like, hey, what happened to that? Place the mold facing me. So while we're, um, while we're vacuuming up here, um, I will... Uh, well, we're going to get towards the end, yeah. Um, but we're not going to wrap up right away because we have a few more comments. So, um, Pete, how loud can you talk? Can you talk over that? Oh, it's not relevant anymore. Oh, no, no longer relevant. There's a new topic you're talking about. Yep. A new topic you're talking about. Okay. Overlapping does happen. 
Well, one of the funniest things to me is the fact that we've got the, the, the three L, uh, officers in Egypt we have right here are the cupbearer, the baker, and the butcher, which to me sounds like Pharaoh was really into his sandwiches. <laughs> the cold beverage on the side. His sandwiches. Well, I, I wondered why the, the, the uh, chief of the butchers was over in prison. Makes you wonder what he was butchering, doesn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Might not be the best guy to tick off. This year I saw that the uh, cupbearer was raised back up where he belonged. Right. But if you think about what happens next portion, he didn't really need a baker. Yeah. Hmm. No bread. Good point. Good point. Well, yeah, I think there was also some kind of pun because the word for count is like raise the hand, you know? Right. And so Pharaoh counted both of them, and he just lifted one guy's head with a rope. Right. As, as Joseph says, he will lift your head off your body. <laughs> yeah. Mm, ouch. Well, yeah, that's what we're saying. He's the butcher, so... He's in charge of the prison. Um, hmm. Uh, but yeah, but Joseph, to his credit, I think is always he's always winning the favor and approval of people wherever he's at. So wherever you are, be all there. Marianne. Yeah, before I go too much further, this came up for me earlier reading. It's um, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you are standing firm and careful that you don't fall, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Mm. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up and Mm-hmm. This is true. Thank you, God. Absolutely. And for Joseph, that meant running away. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Um, just from uh, uh, toward Menachem, he says, uh, Joseph's put in prison here by the Egyptians, and for every conceivable thought, he should have been totally against the government of Egypt because they mm-hmm. You know, wrongly, he even says, I'm wrongly in this pit. I was in another pit. This is another pit, and it's as bad, you know. He says, but Joseph did the very opposite. Not only did he bear no grudge against Pharaoh's ministers, who were key members of the corrupt regime that has wrongfully imprisoned him, but he took an active interest in their welfare. Mm-hmm. In fact, he was even sensitive enough, sensitive enough to notice that they had been troubled by their dreams and inquired, why do your faces look so down today? Mm-hmm. Here it is. In hindsight, we see that from this single act of kindness, hmm. Joseph was eventually saved, leading hmm. him mm-hmm. to save the entire Egyptian people from starvation. You know, Jeremiah says that you should pray for the city in which you dwell, and he's saying that to the Israelites in exile in Babylon, That's right. who was the nation that conquered them. So, mm. not exactly what you'd like, exactly. and yet you should still pray for them. That's, exactly. a, good, that's a good point for us, too. Yes, sir? In the, the, on the last uh, part there, that says, you know... Um, he asked for a good report when they went to see Pharaoh. Uh, Rashi actually ended up saying that it's probably not a good idea because it was as if he put his trust in the two of them, for which he had to stay another two years in prison. But I thought it was cool because he quotes from the Psalm 40, verse 5, and says, Fortunate is the man who places his trust in God and does not turn to the arrogant. Mm. Which is a perfect psalm in that case. Right. Good point. 
That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the very end of this chapter. The, the, it says that, speaking of the chamber of the cupbearers, he did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. The sages, and they had a really cool spin on this first, because I feel like this is a down point for Joseph. It's like, oh, man. But the sages immediately came and they said, he forgot him, as in the, the cupbearer forgot him. But God did not forget him. And uh, one of the things that we see, Joseph is really cool with, with God remembering him, because Joseph learns from this experience, because at the end of his life, Joseph tells his brothers that you are going to go into slavery here, but God will remember you. And that becomes the key word, the secret code, that when Moses comes back later, he says, God has remembered you. God, is going, God has visited you. That language is the same that Joseph had said, which I think he's getting from here, because he remembers that God remembered him, which is pretty cool. So, final comments. Doesn't he say, remember to take my bones with you when I leave? Oh, yeah. he does. <coughs> don't, for, don't forget me this don't forget me yeah. I, I, like how you just brought up um, Moses I think it's funny how it's also similar Joseph's story is to Moses' story Absolutely. because you have Joseph who's at a high point with Jacob as far as over his other brothers mm. then he goes through that low point and then he ascends to this point of leadership and Moshe is in yeah. leadership with Egypt Mm-hmm. Goes through the low point through the mm-hmm. wilderness and you know becomes a shepherd, like learns servitude, and then comes back mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's ascended to this high point of leadership where he's leading what billions of people through the desert, yeah. you mm-hmm. know. And I think it's so, and you know that's also kind of a story of redemption. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I like him even though he has weird hair. Yeah. <laughs> I like him because he has yeah. weird hair. <laughs> I thought this was really cool. The, the Lubavitcher Rebbe talked about this particular portion and how it coincides with around the time of Hanukkah. And he had a really cool practical point for all of us in that he had pointed out that it said that Judah went up to Timnah. But then it was saying how uh, Timnah is a great example of like life because you either go up to it or, as Samson later on in Judges, you go down to Timnah, this, this mm. place. And so he says, this we know is very similar to around the time of Hanukkah. It's just like how when you light the first candle on the first night of Hanukkah, you did everything great. Like you fulfilled the utmost of that mitzvah. But if you only lit one candle on the second night of Hanukkah, you're actually like going backwards. <laughs> and like every, for every night that you miss, you're still doing like that one mitzvah, but it was only applicable for that particular time, like you need to keep increasing. Mm. So it's either it's in life you are always either ascending and taking a step forward in your service of Hashem, mm. or you're taking a step backwards. Mm. Mm. Good mm. Point. Mm. Very good. That's a really good point. Um, I think it's a really good point to end on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that has like a really cool thing. They just the fire is burning in their belly. Okay. Um, in that case, can you close us out? as the proud grandfather of two more grandchildren. Two more, praise God. Good Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for Mashiach, for the examples and foreshadowing of Mashiach in the scriptures as we read. Father, you've protected your people down through the ages, and as we approach Hanukkah, we remember the dedication that you expect from us. Father, I pray that uh, this Hanukkah, We would rededicate ourselves. We would remember those that uh, fought and prevailed because of your grace. We thank you, Father, for today, for the rest we hope and pray 
that it is uh, acceptable in your sight and pray that uh, as each family goes their way that uh, Havdalah will bring a great and wonderful week ahead as we look forward to the wedding in the middle of the week. And we pray these things, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, Adonai, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah and our Lord and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.